Hello and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to talk about grounding, micro-hydro hybrid systems, getting into batteries and mono, and then we're going to cover monocrystalline and polycrystalline silicon solar cells. And so let's kind of get into what we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail. So grounding is important and can be confusing with many different theories on how and why grounding should be done. Here we are going to talk about the basics, including the neutral, which is the grounded conductor, the equipment grounding conductor, also known as the EGC, and the grounding electrode conductor, known as the GEC. We will even make mention of something called SWER, which means single wire earth return. And this means using one wire for transmission and using earth as a conductor to complete the circuit. Wow. Then we're gonna cover batteries. We had a battery question, and we're gonna talk about microhydro. And what's interesting about batteries is they used to be the way for PV, and then it was all grid-tied, and now as we get more and more intermittent renewables on the grid, because PV and wind have been so successful, we're getting batteries coming back again. And so I took a trip and helped my brother install a PV system in Haines, Alaska, in Mud Bay. I don't know if you would call it a neighborhood. It's more of like, because it's so off the grid. But anyway, one of his neighbors had a micro hydro system and it was like going back in time for the PV industry. A lot of these systems were 30 years old and so they'd been around for a while. And we're gonna get into that a bit. And next, for our third question, we're gonna talk about monocrystalline PV and how it's taken over as the number one type of PV from polycrystalline silicon solar cells in the last few years. And we're going to talk about the differences of how mono and poly are made. So that's monocrystalline silicon and polycrystalline silicon, and a little bit about even where the silicon comes from. So let's get on with it. Okay, the first podcast question that we're going to have for today is from Sierra Smith. And Sierra says, I wanted to double check my understanding of neutral versus ground. Ground wiring is meant to complete the circuit to ground in the case that the metal complete the circuit to ground in case that the metal that we somehow don't want to have current on it somehow gets current. If that ground fault occurs, then it should trigger a fuse which will shut down the system. An electrician then verifies where the ground fault is and fixes it. Neutral is a bit more nebulous to me. I think current flows through the hot wire and returns to the earth through the neutral. What is the best way to understand the neutral? Okay, let's shift gears here now. Remember, neutral gears, haha. Anybody that drove a stick shift knows what I'm talking about. Grinding gears. Okay, Sierra, here's the answer to your question and the question of the universe. 42. Just kidding. Okay. The answer is an electrode connects to earth, such as a ground rod. So that's your connection to earth, you know, plug it into the earth. The earth has a lot of resistance to it, but it still can conduct electricity. And the higher the voltage, the easier it is to conduct electricity to earth. Did you know that even earth can be a conductor? They have something called single wire earth return. And those are electrical systems that just have one transmission wire and the return is through earth. You can check this out in Wikipedia or something, in Wikipedia or in other places on the internet. And Australia is kind of famous for this. They only have to bring one wire and the return goes through earth 
and it's probably why kangaroos jump so much. So that's it. The electrode is what connects you to earth. And so that could be like a ground rod or a concrete encased electrode that's encased in concrete, which also can carry some current. And wet earth is more conductive than dry earth. So you might have a little bit of trouble getting a good connection to earth when you're in the dry desert. You might have to just ground it to a cactus or some Joshua tree. Hey, by the way, this is being recorded in Palm Springs. So what do you connect that electrode to? You connect it to a grounding electrode conductor, also abbreviated as GEC, not to be confused with EGC, Equipment Grounding Conductor. It's GEC, Grounding Electrode Conductor, which goes to the main grounding bus bar in your typical main service panel. Also connected to the grounding bus bar are all of the equipment grounding conductors in your main service panel and the grounded conductors. And those are also known as neutrals. Grounded conductors ends with a D and that is known as a neutral and that's usually going to be a white wire, sometimes gray. And equipment grounding conductors, grounding ends with a G, just like grounding electrode conductors and equipment grounding conductors and grounding electrode conductors, they are not supposed to carry current and they are green or bare. So G is for green, like grounding ends with a G, and it can be green or bare, and those things are not supposed to carry current. And so for our examples here, let's just use a house with a single main service panel. We're not talking subpanels here yet. And so in your house, in the main service panel, there's gonna be one place where all of these wires meet, and it's usually a single bus bar. And if you have a subpanel, you do not make these things meet there. And this is because we have something called a single point of system grounding. And that's the single point where you derive a neutral. And so that means your neutral, that's that white wire that can carry current, is connected to all the green and bare wires just in one place per system. However, with solar, sometimes we have sort of an exception here, and that's called a supply side connection. And so if you're on the supply side of the main overcurrent protection device, that means between the main breaker and the meter, then you can also derive a neutral over there. In fact, that's the way that you really should do it. And that's because you are on the supply side of the main overcurrent protection device. You have to remember that grounding is not perfect. There's no perfect absolute way to do it. There's benefits to one way and another way and places are different. And some places have more lightning than others and wetter ground. And so we just have different opinions on ways to ground things. And that's one of the things that expert electrician trainers like to argue about is grounding just because there's so many different opinions. But we do agree that we need a single point of system grounding. So if you have a transformer, then you're gonna derive a neutral differently on the different side of the transformer because you need a different single point of system grounding there because it's a separately derived system when it's on the other side of a transformer. And so what would happen if we did connect the neutral to ground in another place, like at the subpanel? Then we would start to see some currents that were supposed to go on the neutral shared via that parallel pathway down the green or bare wire. That's the equipment grounding conductor. And we are not supposed to have currents on the equipment grounding conductor. So eh, that would be a bad thing. So we make sure not to connect 
neutral to ground in two places. We only do it in one place and that makes the voltage of neutral and ground the same. It should always be the same. Might show up a few volts different on your meter because of something like voltage drop, but it's pretty much the same, neutral and ground. If you looked at a plug on the wall, you're gonna see your ground is that third prong that you don't always use, and the neutral is the upper left big wider prong. And I said wider, like it's thicker. And so just remember, Equipment grounding conductors and grounding electrode conductors, that's EGCs and GECs, are either green or bare wires, but sometimes you'll see green with a yellow stripe. And neutrals are white, sometimes gray when you're talking three phase and stuff, with higher voltages, just to let people know. And so a neutral in your house, it can carry current. So if you have a 120 volt load, such as a plug in the wall, half of that current is on the neutral. And so if a hot wire, that means not a neutral, sometimes we call it line one or line two, touches another wire, it should cause an inrush of current, and then a circuit breaker will trip and open up the circuit. And so with electricity, open means off. We're not talking plumbing here. Electricity, open, so you disconnect things, it turns something off. So the rule is that all metal equipment that could become a shock hazard, such as a PV module frame or anything metal near wires, should be connected together with EGCs, that's equipment grounding conductors, and eventually connected to the main grounding bus bar if you follow the pathway like those electrons are if you had a ground fault. Because remember, we're not supposed to be carrying current there on the equipment grounding conductor. And so if there's a ground fault and everything is properly bonded together with EGCs, that's equipment grounding conductors, then there will be no difference of voltage and nobody will get hurt. So just imagine if you didn't have all of your solar module frames at the same voltage and there was a loose wire on one of them and you touched two different modules that had two different voltages, then that means current would go through your heart and that's not a good thing when current goes through your heart unless it's the current of your heart muscle that your heart muscle is making otherwise you could have a heart attack so just be careful and make sure that you have everything properly bonded and grounded and by the way just speaking of bonded bonded means connecting everything together so it's all at the same voltage and oftentimes when we say grounded we're really talking about bonded. Those words are sort of kind of interchangeable, but what you're doing when you're say, for instance, connecting a piece of copper to your rail and bringing that down to the inverter is we are bonding things together, but everybody says grounded and that's okay because things are kind of interchangeable. So thanks a lot, Sierra Smith. Thanks for that question and stay bonded, stay grounded. Om. All right, and our next question is from Peter Dewey, and he has a question about hybrid systems, pretty much. And he says, I was shocked to learn that many installations have no batteries. That's photovoltaic installations. I have always associated a PV install with backup. And with regards to hybrid systems, have you seen a PV system used with running water as a source and generator, such as a creek? And so, what we're doing here too, I just want to clear things up, this Sean here, and for hybrid systems, we have to clarify, hybrid systems is what they have in the National Electrical Code, 
And that means a PV system where you have a different source of energy besides the grid or batteries. And so grid or batteries do not make a hybrid system, but something such as running water, that means a micro hydro turbine could cause your system to be hybrid. And most people that live off grid do have a backup generator because they have to get through those dark days and they can't afford to have a million dollars worth of batteries to make it through all those months where it can get dark. So they typically oftentimes have a generator. And so let's start answering your question. And yes, I have seen it. So one of the things that I even did recently is I went up to Alaska and there's this cool place called Haynes, Alaska. And my brother, Kevin White, has all kinds of good friends up there. And they are living in this place called Mud Bay where there's no grid and they all live off grid and they all have these old PV systems. And a lot of times there's wind associated with them. And we even saw a micro hydro system up there. And I tell my brother that he kind of sold out. So for about 20 years, he had his piece of property with no electricity at all. So we'd go up there and light candles and stuff. And yes, he sold out. And this year he finally got a PV battery system, which was kind of fun to set up. And he kind of likes it having electricity, you know, getting old, selling out electricity, you know, welcome to the 20th century. So anyway, yeah, it was pretty cool. We went to the, this friend's house. They had us for dinner and they let us see their micro hydro turbine. And so what happens there is they get one kilowatt 24 hours a day. So that equals 24 kilowatt hours. And this happens 365 days a year, as long as things don't freeze up in the winter and they don't freeze up as long as he does a little bit of looking around and maintenance and just making sure everything works right. It has happened though before. And it was kind of weird going to this guy's house. He had a couple of solar modules just to add to it, but it wasn't very big in the way of solar. And he just had this baseline micro hydro. And in fact, he had so much electricity that he had extra. And so what he did is he had a heater, like just a regular resistance heater inside of his greenhouse, just making those plants nice and toasty so they grow faster. Plants do grow a lot in Alaska because they have these really long sunny days in the summer. Like if you go far enough north, you get 24 hours of sun. And if you go to some places in Alaska, they have competitions and they have these huge cabbages that are like as big as people almost because of all that sunlight. So in reality though, it's really rare to see a hybrid system with hydropower. Just not common for people to be in the right location with a creek or river that they can divert and have the elevation and flow required for a micro hydro system. And if they did and they had enough of this, they might not even need PV. And my grandfather, Morgan White, he was a hydro expert, but he worked on turbine research and big, large dams. Morgan was one of those top experts in the world on that kind of thing. And yes, yeah, that's right. We're related to JP very distantly. So distant that yes, I didn't even get a dollar because of that. So anyway, fossil fuel generators are very common with off-grid PV systems. Before Y2K, most systems were off-grid. 
That's because connecting to the grid just didn't pay at all. And so there was not much in the way of a grid-tied PV industry. It was kind of just a novelty. And then along came the year 2000 and the Germans and their feed-in tariff and the PV revolution. And so what we would have then back in the day is expensive PV, very expensive, like $1,000 solar modules and more than that even, and they were smaller. And we had lead-acid batteries and a generator with about every system. And it was very interesting to take a tour of all my brother's neighbor's houses up there in Mud Bay and Haynes, Alaska. And so these systems were old and not very upgradable because if you started changing things, the solar modules wouldn't match, the inverters wouldn't match. I saw some big 12 volt systems and these people, they got to really know their lead acid batteries. They probably had names for the different cells in their batteries and they'd go, this cell takes a little bit more water than the other ones. And I remember this one guy with a big battery bank that he says that he always keeps it between 190%. And I think he said he was going on 20 years for that battery bank. Just took really good care of those babies. And these wind turbines, they were really cool. But if you thought about it financially these days, even up where we were in southeast Alaska, so we weren't up in the Arctic Circle where you have 24 hours of night, but the price for PV has gone down so much that it's very hard to make a case for very small wind. Big wind, yeah, you can make a case for that, but you need like a billion dollars to start off on a big wind company. And then those big wind turbines can power like thousands of houses, or should I say energy thousands of houses. Hmm. Anyway, after grid-tied solar became popular, it was most cost-effective to use interactive inverters with no backup. Adding backup would, in many cases, double the price or triple the price of the system, and with net metering in the early days at least, you would often get the same price for exporting as you would for buying electricity 24 hours a day. Sometimes you still do, it just depends on where you are, and there's way many so many, like an infinite amount of utilities, it seems like. That means thousands in the US. So the grid was essentially a 100% efficient battery. So think of that. You could send electricity to the grid in the summer and June, and you can take it back out at midnight in December. 100% efficient battery. Now beat that. And those lead acid batteries are about 70% round trip efficient. So there's a lot of losses there. Lithium ion batteries, about 95% efficient round trip. And green hydrogen, saving electricity that way, going from electrolysis of water and then storing that hydrogen and putting it back into a fuel cell to make electricity, round trip efficiency, 35%. Ugh, that's very tough to make a case for. Unless PV is free and the way that PV is getting so cheap these days, it will be free soon. Hey, I just thought of a new government program, free PV. Just the government should just make a big factory and make it for free. Okay, now storage is making a big comeback since there is more intermittent solar and wind on the grid. We are seeing different policies where people can get a return on investment for having energy storage, but you really have to check with where you are. In most places, there's not a return on storage, so people are paying for the security of backup for when the grid goes down. You know, preppers, prepping, or 
Sometimes the grid really does go down a lot in different places. For example, we have the public safety power shutoffs that are really common in California, where the utility turns off the electricity when it gets windy and dry. We can have hurricanes, all kinds of good reasons to have some backup. And then people that live way off the beaten path and they're supplied by little skinny power lines going up a mountain. Those people can have their power go out for weeks at a time. And in some places, this is very interesting, it is popular to have storage without backup. So that's right, I said to have batteries at your house and no backup at all. And that's pretty common in places like Germany. And so Germany, there's a high penetration of solar on the grid and the grid is super stable. So it's not worth it to pay those couple extra thousand euro, which is a little bit more than a dollar in order to have backed up loads. Besides having the battery, you have to rewire stuff and that can cost a couple thousand euro. And so they're strictly doing something called self-consumption. And that's what mostly the batteries are doing in Hawaii these days too when people put batteries on their houses in Hawaii. What they do is during the middle of the day while they're not home, they charge the battery. And then in the evenings, as they start to use more than they're making with their solar system, they use that battery. And then ideally their battery is low when the sun comes up in the morning. And then you know what they do the next day? They do the same thing. And that's called self-consumption. And in Hawaii and in some places, they're not even allowed to export. And so that's a really good case for a battery, especially when you have expensive electricity and a big PV system that's big enough to export a substantial amount of electricity, say when you're not at home sometimes, like in the middle of the day. And another place that has a high penetration of solar that does stuff like this is Australia, mate. And we're gonna see this happen more and more as time goes on because solar will soon be everywhere. And then we need to make incentives so people get some batteries so we don't over inundate the grid midday, eh? And we're seeing some of this in different places in California too, where they change the rate structure for new customers. And if they make the difference in the price of electricity enough between midday and evening, so midday cheap electricity, evening expensive electricity, that's called time of use. If the delta, that's the difference in price is enough, then that makes a good case for having an energy storage system. Plus there can be also other benefits such as rebates for the energy storage system. But if you have true net metering where it's just the same price year round, importing and exporting, then it really doesn't make a good case for a grid tied battery. Okay, thanks for that great question, Peter Dewey. Okay, and here's the last question for today's podcast. This one comes from Todd Falcone. And the question is about poly and monocrystalline. And it says, are polycrystalline PV modules more popular than monocrystalline PV modules? SunPower is the company that I've been studying, and so I don't know much about polycrystalline. Are most utility-scale projects polycrystalline? All right, it's the monopoly talk. Let's talk about these different solar cells. And so just to kind of sum up what these different solar cells are is monocrystalline is better than polycrystalline. However, the monocrystalline of five years ago probably isn't as good as the polycrystalline of today because things get better and the difference is kind of close. However, SunPower is known for making super efficient solar that costs more. 
I remember when I used to work for a sun power dealer, we called it the Mercedes of solar. You can't really call it the Tesla of solar because they already have their own solar. So maybe we can call it the electric Mercedes of solar. How about the electric McLaren or electric Ferrari of solar? Anyway, they're known for being super, super efficient and costing a little bit more, of course. If something's better, it costs more. And so let's talk a little technical about what's going on here. And so silicon crystal, what silicon is, is it's the second most abundant element in the Earth's crust. That's right after oxygen. What do you know? The Earth's crust number one element is oxygen. I thought that's what I was breathing. But that stuff that I'm breathing gets oxidized and it combines with things like silicon and iron and all kinds of things and makes things like rock and dirt. And it's just a big part of this crust that we are over right now. Unless you're in Hawaii, then you're on magma maybe. If you're like lava surfing. Anyway, that's a dangerous sport. So we get the silicon and then we put a little bit of boron in it usually, sometimes phosphorus if it's indoped, like SunPower's indoped. But it's mostly pretty much silicon and it's molten and it was really hard to refine and it's seven nines pure. That's like 99.999 until you have seven nines. And if you had 99.9% .9 pure silicon, that would be garbage because it wouldn't work because it has to be super pure, like for a computer chip. Same thing, yep, crystalline silicon. Computer chips, solar cells, or at least most solar cells. There's some exceptions like thin film, solar. So then we have this silicon that's been refined, that's doped up with a little bit of a doping agent, such as boron or phosphorus. Then we have to make cells out of it, solar cells out of it. So what do we do? We take that molten silicon and to make polycrystalline, we just pour it in a mold and let it harden. And when it hardens, there's sort of like a flaw in a diamond and they call that multi-crystalline or polycrystalline because there's multiple crystals. Well, if we wanna make it pure, like one single crystal, monocrystal, it's sort of like a candle making process. And so what they do is they take a seed crystal, that's a piece of crystal silicon that's already monocrystalline it's kind of long, maybe kind of like a candle, and they dip it in and spin it as it's dipped into molten silicon, and they bring it up slowly, and it's kind of like a candle-making process. And so think of all the energy that goes into keeping that silicon like lava, molten silicon, and they're spinning it, and they're drawing it up, and they get this big, long monocrystalline ingot, which we call a boule, B-O-U-L-E, and it's round like a candle. And then they take cheap diamonds, those are industrial diamonds, not like the ones you put on your fingers, with wires, and so they have a diamond wire saw blade and they saw these things as thin as they can. They'll do that with the monocrystalline and the polycrystalline. They saw them as thin as they possibly can. And then they get these super thin solar cells and they get sawdust. They call that sawdust kerf loss. I remember Bill Nye, the science guy, wanted to use particle accelerators to slice it extra thin. And one of the reasons why is the thinner the better, plus all that sawdust is no longer 99.9999% pure silicon. Remember, seven nines. So it's kind of like as valuable as sand, which is one of the components that they can use to refine to make silicon, sand and quartz. So then you get these circular 
solar cells or future solar cells, I should say, wafers. And if you put a bunch of circles together, there's a bunch of wasted space. So they cut the edges off to not waste so much space, but they're wasting too much silicon if they cut the edges off to make it square. And so that's why monocrystalline pretty much always has rounded corners. Look at those solar cells, you know that shape? It's called a squircle, square circle. And if you don't believe that squircle is a word, look it up, it actually is, if you believe Wikipedia. And so for the polycrystalline, which is not quite as efficient, but they can cut it into squares so they don't have that wasted space thing there. And so that's right, the monocrystalline is a little bit more efficient than the polycrystalline. And up until a few years ago, the majority of solar in the world was polycrystalline, but now the majority is monocrystalline. So that means we are getting more efficient. And I remember too that people used to say, oh, I'm gonna only use mono, but really what you should do is look for what's the best PV and the best efficiency. And it would be the case because they're close. And so lower efficiency mono might be less efficient than higher efficiency polycrystalline. And so get the polycrystalline if it's more efficient. But these days, I guess the penciled out best deal typically is gonna be for monocrystalline. So let's hear it for mono. Woo, monocrystalline. Thanks again for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more about everything under the sun, including energy storage systems, batteries, go to solarsean.com.